it's a really small number that are siblings that they're seeing. So I think we hear about it a lot and people worry about it a lot, but there are a lot of successful sibling pairings in households. It's just those bad cases I think we do hear about. So you guys know we had to have an episode on puppies in aggression. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Janet Cutler, who is an expert on puppies and has researched puppy socialization while earning her PhD. We discuss why puppies may display aggressive behaviors at such a young age and what factors might influence aggression. We also chat about things like the secondary imprint period and littermate syndrome, or the lack thereof. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression, including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world on helping dogs with aggression, and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a three-day virtual event happening from October 2nd to 4th, 2020, with 10 amazing speakers, all experts in their field. You can find out more by going to thelooseleashacademy.com. And if you're listening to this episode on the day it was released, there's only one week left to register for the conference. Conference registration closes on September 28th. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Shikashio. I'm here with Janet Cutler, who is a puppy expert, and I'm excited to have her on the show because we're going to get into puppies and all the things that I'm sure many of the listeners have questions on. Janet is an animal behavior consultant and certified professional dog trainer. She has a master's in science and a PhD, both specializing in animal behavior and welfare, as well as epidemiology. She's been working in animal industry for 20 years as a veterinary technician, behavior researcher, dog trainer, and behavior consultant. Janet is passionate about helping families and their pets. She spends her time at home with her family, including her two daughters, aged four and six, husband and their dog, Marmalade, and their chickens. And her research right now is on puppies, so I'm excited to jump right in and start picking her brain about all things puppies. So welcome, Janet. Hi, thanks for having me. One of the issues we were talking about just before we jumped on the recording is this socialization in puppies and how it's very difficult for people right now during the pandemic and the limitations on how much we can expose puppies. So, But first, let's define what socialization means to you. Okay. Well, there isn't actually a technical definition that we have in the research or anything like that. So I define it as getting your dog used to a variety of different exposures. So that can include people, animals, different experiences, different locations, um, and making sure you do all of that in a really positive manner. And that's kind of an important part of the definition to me anyway. We really don't want to be flooding our puppies and just throwing them into situations. We want to do it gradually and carefully to make sure that it is positive for them. So what are the things that you're, when you say like flooding, what maybe even some of the listeners may not know what that means. What would that look mm-hmm. like to you? Well, um, if you take a young puppy to an event, I mean, we may not have them right now, but an event with a whole bunch of people when they haven't really been exposed to many people yet. So throwing them into that situation where there's a lot of something they're not used to, that can be really scary for a young puppy. So we really want to make sure that we're not creating fear in those dogs. 
uh, like in terms of uh, when you know, like a lot of pet owners will hear, you know, you got to skip, you got to socialize your puppy, which is good. You know, I'm glad yes. that that advice is getting out there. Uh, but what does good socialization look like for you? So if you were to, if you had a wish list of things where owners would do with their puppies that wouldn't expose them to flooding, or and and kind of also consider the puppy's personality in a sense, like what would you, what would your general advice be there? Yeah. So first of all, in terms of personality, if you've got you get some puppies that are a little more fearful than others. You've got some that are exuberant and could care less what they're kind of being introduced to. And then you've got the shyer puppies. So you definitely have to change your method of doing it depending on what their personality is. But you want them to be meeting a lot of other people. Um, There's no real number for how many it should be. A lot of people say 100 people. Some of our The research we tried to do tried to get a number, but we weren't able to do that too well. But that's a good, I think, estimate. Um, You want to introduce them to other dogs, especially, just because they'll be meeting dogs throughout their lifetime. Other animals, so especially if you live in the country or if you're in the city and there's cats around, making sure that they're being introduced to those. To noises, I'm just kind of going an overview of everything right now, but to noises, different environments, different surfaces, so what they're walking on to, because they need to get used to different areas, and handling. And those are kind of the primary areas that I would have you focus on with a puppy. So, you know, like we've got to introduce them to a lot of different people, uh, for instance. How would we, how would that look like? Because, again, we've got the old way of like maybe pass the puppy around in puppy class. And for some puppies, that might be incredibly scary. I use the analogy all the time where, you know, if you take your kind of, your puppy that also has a fearful propensity already, you take it to like Home Depot and just start passing it around to every scary guy there. That's going to be flooding and overwhelming for that puppy. So what are the rules of thumb there? How can we fine tune that so it makes it more clear what we're really looking for? Absolutely. So I would start first with just one person. So when you're starting to introduce them to people outside of your home, just one person, and you try to let the puppy approach as opposed to handing the puppy off to somebody else. So um, with people, usually if they kind of bend down or kneel down and allow the puppy to approach them slowly, that's usually your best bet. Giving praise or treats for them to approach is also good once they've gotten there, but you really don't want to be luring them with that. You want them to approach on their own and then you can reward them that interaction then you can move on to small groups really gradually over time so it's kind of like the consent test thing that we've seen happen a lot more in the dog training world and and just allowing the puppy to come up and and uh, maybe even waiting like give a quick pet and then wait a few seconds and then see what the puppy does again see if they approach again Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good way of doing it. And then I wouldn't recommend any young puppies go into an environment with a lot of people because that can really be overwhelming and you have less control over what people are doing with your dog in those situations. Now, you're up in Canada, so do you see the same, at least in the States here, we see a lot of uh, the veterinary field really being careful about how we expose puppies of a certain age that haven't been vaccinated yet. And so that's this little conundrum we have where we want to keep the puppies healthy, but we also want to make sure they're behaviorally sound because there's, you know, certainly health risks can play a role on what happens to a puppy or a dog, but behavioral risks can be often trump that. So what do you, what would you say there? Yes, and I completely agree. Part of the problem is um, their immune response to vaccination kind of coincides with the really important period for socialization, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit. But the American Society, our Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior, has a recommendation out for puppy socialization. And they think that it's more important that puppies receive socialization 
before sorry before they're fully vaccinated so they recommend they have one or two vaccines but they don't have to be fully vaccinated in order to begin doing that i definitely recommend that as well i'm not a veterinarian myself but i think as long as your vet is okay with it then you should start that and veterinarians who may not know about this i usually send them the information from their website it's it's a little bit difficult. If you live in an area where there's a lot of parvovirus going around, I would change the recommendation for sure and kind of set up socialization in an area where it's going to be safe for your puppy. In those state cases, you don't want them maybe going outside in areas where other dogs could have been to increase their exposure. So you would change how you're doing it a little bit. But I definitely recommend making sure your puppy is socialized before they're fully vaccinated. And so we could do other things as well. You know, we don't. I think there's ways to do it safely, keeping in mind the the icky germs out there, and mm-hmm. also setting our puppies up for success. Can you talk more about that? Like, what are some creative ideas there? If somebody's somebody's a real germaphobe, especially now, right? <laughs> the pandemic. I'm sure our puppy owners like, oh, I don't want to expose my puppy to anything, so they're really yeah. careful. Yeah, for sure. So for if you're worrying about dogs specifically, um, getting together with people or family members who may have dogs that are fully vaccinated and healthy. So you have a pretty good idea that they're likely not carrying anything like that. And then in terms of introducing them to people, it can be difficult right now as well for the same reason for coronavirus. So trying to at least be meeting up with people that are um, that you're regularly interacting with. The thing about socialization with with other dogs and with people is your dog doesn't always have to interact with them. So even if you are outside and either holding your puppy or on a walk, part of what we want to be teaching our puppies is that they don't have to approach every single person and every single dog out there. So the fact that they're taking a look at them and then checking in with you, you can also really reward that. And they're still getting that exposure, but they're not actually going up and approaching, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it's excellent. Excellent advice. And I'll side note that too, by saying just, this is our time to say, just say no to dog parks for puppies, yes. especially. <laughs> it's, like, it's like taking your infant to a biker bar. It's just not a good idea usually. Yeah, um, for sure. I've also, um, I've been having some of my clients actually play videos of other dogs and of people. And there's been a, one research study that's actually looked at pup, young puppies and how they watch videos. So they saw that they actually do watch the video. And they found differences when they tested them later on in terms of fear with novel objects or new things that they weren't used to. So I think that, you know, using those methodologies right now might be helpful for some puppies. Oh, Definitely worth a try. Yeah. 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 Just want to make sure the TV is, you know, in a safe location. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can see how that can go wrong in some cases, for <laughs> yeah. sure. How about, let's, let's segue into uh, the critical developmental stages for puppies now I'll, I'll let you drop your knowledge and geek out on this a little bit in terms of you know so depending on which author you read and which text you're looking at I mean this is generally agreed upon time frame but let's talk about that critical developmental windows um, 0 to 12 0 to 16 weeks depending on what you're reading where, where do you stand on that yeah, so, I mean, the socialization period is the area that I focused on the most with my research, and it's true. There's different studies that have looked at different dates and kind of came up with different, you know, time frames. I generally say three weeks up to 12 to 14 weeks of age because most of the studies um, are in that time frame. 
the problem with a lot of this research, especially for the socialization period, is to really do it well, you have to completely not socialize your control group. And then we end up with dogs with a lot of problems. So if they're not exposed to any people whatsoever, any other animals other than their family group, we get a lot of problems. So you'll end up with dogs that, you know, really can't be properly homed or anything like that following that. So there hasn't been any research done. A lot of this stuff was done in the 50s and 60s, I believe. So it was we've changed kind of how we manage our dogs since that time period. Before the socialization period is kind of that neonatal period, and there's definitely a lot of development that happens in that time. So their eyes open, um, they start moving around. So it's kind of a developmental period where it's just the puppies together. And then once they get to the three-week mark, they're starting to walk around, they're starting to interact a lot more. So that's the period of time where we can really start working on socialization. So it's important even before people get their puppies home that whoever's raising these puppies is doing work with them too. And so if I remember going way back to when I was studying about puppies and so there was differentiation between like a canine socialization window and a human socialization window. I think it was Scott and Fuller maybe or maybe even one of the other authors, Michael Fox, perhaps one of the texts I was reading back then. Is there a difference or does it matter much? Is, Is it just all socialization, whether it's it's uh, cats, dogs, humans at a certain age. Is there a particular window that's more sensitive to that? Yeah, there's different sensitive, the kind of windows where it's important that they get socialization, depending on the species for sure. For cats, it finishes around seven weeks of age, eight weeks of age. So by the time people are actually getting the kittens, the socialization window is gone. I honestly don't know what the exact um, time frame is for humans, but it's a longer period of time than it is with puppies. As far as, you know, exposure at a certain time frame in that three to 12 to 14 weeks, mm-hmm. what would you, is there a time where it's most important? Let's say, because most of, a lot of people are getting their puppies at eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a certain window in that time frame that's super important? So like, or do they miss it sometimes? So if it was seven to eight weeks, maybe they've missed that opportunity. Or is it kind of just really that entire time that we've got to... It's it's a bit of that entire time. So we don't want nothing to happen before people get their puppies at eight weeks of age. So it's kind of important that socialization happens throughout that entire period. There is a period of time between about 10 to 12 weeks where they have a bit of a fear period. So we have to be even more careful during that time. Um, But you want to make sure they're getting, ideally, in my opinion, you should be getting exposure, you know, throughout that entire time so that it's kind of being reinforced. Has the, has the research kind of shown as far as breeds? So certain breeds kind of are known to mature, socially mature at different ages than some other breeds. Uh, are, is there a lot of research done on puppies in different breeds as far as the window? Is there any difference there depending on breed? We don't have a lot. There's only a couple breeds that were actually used for the research to develop that time period. So we don't have a lot of information. I think they were smaller breeds. Um, so we don't know for those large breeds if it is very different because we don't really have research on that. There's a lot of differences in sexual maturity. So kind of the stage after the socialization period, how big that one is. And we know a lot more about that. But for the socialization period itself, we don't have that much information on different breeds unfortunately because it probably does differ a little bit yeah i'd be super interested to see you know like what how a mastiff matures and what how they develop about the socialization window how that differs if at all yeah maybe a chihuahua yeah when we talk about it we just lump all the breeds together when really 
they are very different sometimes. So yeah, it would yeah. be interesting to look at that and just kind of see, even if we could look at when that fear period starts, cause that would give us a bit of an idea of how long yeah. that time frame is. So that's kind of what I was going to ask you about next. So there's this sort of not controversial, but debated topic of that secondary imprint period. Some people call it secondary fear period. Some people say, well, it's not a fear period. It's a heightened state of awareness period where a dog might perceive a particular stimulus in a much more profound way than they did when they were six months of age. So now at eight months of age or nine months of age, you suddenly the dog is fearful of something they weren't previously. So first tell us what your opinion is on what that window of time is and then what to actually call it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good question. So in general, people kind of say that there is a secondary fear period. So that first one's eight to 10 weeks in there somewhere. The second one um, is anywhere six to 14 months is kind of the region that I've read. A lot of the, we don't really have much research on it, so we don't have that much information. I mean, you hear anecdotal reports of things happening during those times that really upset their dog, and it kind of stayed with them for life. So there may be different times during that period. I'm I'm trying to remember with my puppies. I remember there was a couple cases where you know something seemed they seemed more fearful about something that they normally wouldn't seem that way. But it's hard to say if that's because of a period that where they're more sensitive to it or just, you know, that day something happened that made them change their behavior a little bit. We don't have any good research in that area at all to give us an answer, unfortunately. And even the textbooks don't really talk too much about that second period, I think just because we don't have that research backing it. It's, a, am sure, a difficult thing to study because of all the other factors involved including sexual maturity, which you were mentioning, and going through adolescence. There's just so many variables, right, that can affect behavior. So uh, let's just jump back to that sexual maturity thing you were talking about earlier as far as the window for that. So when does that happen, and how much do you think that impacts behavior? So hormonal hormonal influences and things like that in puppies and adolescents. um... Sexual maturity is usually around six to nine months. And again, that one's very breed dependent. And yeah, it's hard to say exactly when it's going to occur, even within a breed. You've got dogs that kind of generally, you know, around six months, but some may be longer than others. And that's, we kind of say that they should get continued socialization, at least up to that stage. We don't really have a different term for that socialization window and then the kind of continued socialization. So it can be a little bit confusing, but we want to make sure they're still getting all those exposures until that time. And then once they reach sexual maturity, usually their behavior changes quite a bit. And most people, I think, are focusing more on training and working on self-control and that sort of stuff instead of socialization at that point, just because, you know, you need it a little bit more then. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree. It's, um, yeah, that, that's the time that a lot of people will get, trainers will get phone calls too, this once and they get there. (laughs) For me, I, they usually don't, at least don't start biting people until about a year and a half. (laughs) That's the average age I get, but the, the other problem behaviors start a little earlier. So speaking of, speaking of biting, um, what are, let's talk about jumping back to the young puppies again. So, you know, Mm -hmm. 16, 16 weeks and under, we'll put them at as far as red flags that you see in puppy behavior that might not be overt. So, you know, we have puppies, which we'll talk about in just a moment, about the overt, you know, biting, really fighting with litter mates kind of puppies. But what about younger puppies that you see that are that are red flags? So somebody presents a puppy to you and you're like, wait, whoa, we got to work on this now 
because it could potentially get much worse as the puppy matures. Uh, what are some of those things that you might see, if any? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, there are some for sure. And there's kind of a few different areas where you can see that in puppies. One of the ones that I find puppy owners notice the most is resource guarding. So if you're starting to see that in a young puppy, it's definitely a flag that something's going on. Usually it's when they're they don't often see the subtle signs, but usually once the puppy starts growling, staring, um, or even kind of lunging, biting, that kind of thing, they're really noticing that. So those are the more overt signs, but definitely a young puppy shouldn't really be resource guarding around their food. So that's one thing that I definitely see in um, young dogs where it's a sign that, you know, we really got to start working on this. What else do you see? You know, so we got resource guarding. Do you see like more less obvious things, maybe some sort of more, I don't want to call micro behaviors, but something that maybe like as an animal behavior professional like yourself might see and you're like, okay. Or even something that maybe a trainer might not see because it's such something like you as an expert in puppies would, would notice before. Yeah. A lot of those come along with kind of the fear behaviors that we tend to see in young puppies. Um, So if they're really not wanting to approach other dogs, things like that. So in a puppy class, you'll often have a group of puppies and most of them are playing, but then you might have that one puppy who's really hanging back, you know, staying at the feet of the owner, not willing to approach other dogs. Those ones are ones where you really need to put a bit more work into them because you don't want that to develop into fear aggression later on. You can see puppies that either withdraw when there's, you know, situations that they're in that they're uncomfortable with or really avoiding approaching other things. So both of those. It's kind of difficult to tease out for dog owners when they're watching because, you know, puppies can be fearful of things on a normal basis. It's more when they're doing it a little bit more often. Um, So if a puppy startles or they approach something cautiously, that's not abnormal behavior by any means. But if they're doing it for a longer period of time or they're doing it with everything, then that's definitely a sign that, you know, we need to be working on that with the puppy. That's interesting. Just to jump back to that subject of resource guarding. So we sometimes see resource guarding puppies and sometimes it might be genetic. So we might see some breeds tendencies and certain lines and sometimes we might see it more of a learned behavior. So you know, somebody feeding all of them a, a small amount of food out of one bowl, uh, you know, as the puppy's moving on to kibble or, or food, it's you sometimes see it's a competition over that resource, so it increases their propensity to do it when they're 9 or 10 weeks or 11 weeks when they come home to the home. Or if there's another dog in the home, sometimes it's it's pretty scary for owners to see like a 9-week-old puppy really growling or snapping at their 4-year-old golden retriever that's also in the home. How much would you say is coming from... Uh, learned behavior versus genetic in those in those puppies does it make a big difference in in how they're you know we're raising them from zero to seven weeks or eight weeks before they go home yeah I think there's absolutely a genetic component to it I don't know if I could say you know what percentage of it is genetic but there's breeds that are more you know they they are more likely to do that however when say breeders are raising them if they can do a lot of things within the home to make sure that you know one puppy isn't being singled out and not getting any food it might be more likely to try to protect once they go to another location or that they're doing activities like being close by when the puppies are eating having them used to people around that sort of thing 
Um, and then once puppies get in the home, we really don't want to be, you know, taking the food away from them, but more adding positive things to it in order to not create that scenario from getting worse or from happening in the first place. I think part of the way that we're raised, if you get uh, puppies that are in a big litter and they're really malnourished or not getting the food that can definitely create part of the problem as well. So there's a lot of different factors that might affect how likely a puppy is to do. And sometimes it's hard to tease out. You know, we don't know the history where that dog comes from. We don't know, you know, there could be some real uh, motivating operations in play in learning that's happened. And- yeah, we don't know. I mean, you may have even gone to the place where the puppy was raised, but there's a lot of those little details that you wouldn't know at all. Yeah, yeah, and most people aren't going to ask that anyways. You know, most pet Absolutely. owners are like, you know, who's who's the friendliest or who's the biggest dog or which one's the prettiest dog? Not how do you feed your dogs, right? How do you feed the puppies? But it's an important question to ask. You know, I always try to get that information if I'm researching a breeder and how they feed their puppies and what methods they use there. Um, And Mm -hmm. and I don't want to make it sound like it's necessarily a bad thing. Many breeders feed all their puppies out of one ball and their puppies come out just fine and they've been doing it for years. And, you know, good genetics plays a role there and good breeding, of course. So um, Yeah, and just the personality of the puppy too. I mean, you may... Breeders may have bred many, many litters, and they're all fine with that, and then they get one that isn't. So Genetics is such a wonderful thing sometimes when it goes well, right? Like, yes. like Trish, Trish McMillan, my colleague Trish, is her, her dog Theodore, I mean, from a fight bust. I mean, the dog was on a chain for the first you know, so year. I can't remember how long exactly. For a long time, right through probably, like, probably all the way up to basically on a chain. And but you know they rescued him from this uh, dog fighting ring, and he's like the most social, unbelievable dog for like that's his that's her like dog for socializing other dogs and people, and she you know just dog you know anybody who's met Theodore would agree, but it's just amazing how good or genetics can, I wouldn't even say it's good genetics in his case because nobody was raising for that, but <laughs> just genetics can can help you out sometimes. That's incredible, yeah, because yeah. you would expect that. <laughs> yeah. Um, very poor socialization not to end up with a dog like that yeah yeah sometimes it works out well for us so what about handling let's talk about that what do you see there as red flag behaviors for puppies that might get growly or really have issues with handling yeah so we see you know if you go to touch a certain body part they may be growling but it's also puppies that if you start getting upset when you're actually restraining them as well so it's kind of a problem that you can have in the future for veterinary visits so it's important to really work on that when they're young but it's also a problem where you don't want other people you know to touch your dog and the dog gets really upset so if you are handling your puppy and they either growl at you or they're really just not calming down they got highly aroused from the handling and it's really taking a long time to come down that's definitely a red flag that there's an issue going on there what are your strategies to kind of uh, mediate that or help the dog so you want to decrease the arousal associated with it so it's really starting in you know small little steps if people are picking up puppies which they tend to do quite a bit and that's really you know it starts to contribute to that happening it would be stop picking up the puppy and really work on it on the ground or somewhere where they're comfortable and not getting that arousal level up where they're feeling that they do have to panic and act that way do you see the differences sometimes i see puppies or or even dogs that it's mostly fear-based. They just, they're afraid of the person. They don't want to be picked up because it's a fear-based thing. And then there's a small segment of dogs that they're supremely confident if I'm going to put a construct or label on it, 
They're mm-hmm. not tail tucked. They're not ears flat and back. They are ears forward, tail high and flagging puppies, chest out, straight legs. And you go to try to pick them up or put a collar on and they're saying, nope, you're not going to do that to me. Do you see that? And what do you think is causing that? Or why do you think those puppies are like that? Such a young age. So like it's almost, again, it's almost like a three-year-old saying, you know, no, you're not going to do that. To tell the teacher, nope, you're not doing that to me. Confidently saying that. What do you, what are your thoughts there? What do I do in those situations? Or like, do you see that? I mean, what, do you see like that kind of puppy that I'm describing there? Yeah, you do see that puppy for sure. A lot of the times when you see this issue with handling, it is fear-based, but there's definitely some of those puppies where they aren't fearful. And then with those ones, it's really, it's taking a different approach than you would with the fear because with the fear, you're kind of moving slowly and gradually getting them more used to it. Usually I think you would see other issues in those dogs that have that really high level of confidence and they don't want to be doing that. So in those confident dogs, what you would want to be doing is really giving them a choice in the matter. So allowing them to have a bit of, you know, choice if they're going to approach or not and really um, rewarding calm behavior and really trying to focus on activities and exercises you can do to try to help decrease that arousal and really work on calming them, getting them used to handling in those situations. So a lot more operant exercises rather than trying to condition or do counter conditioning like as we would with fearful puppies, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 So let's shift to the more overt stuff. So I, I know a lot of listeners probably have experienced this or a lot of trainers. What do you do with when you have a puppy that's nine or ten weeks old and it is full on bite, hold, shake? full overt aggressive behaviors, whether it's resource guarding, whether it's handling, whether it's, um, you know, anything, uh, fear-based behaviors. What's the prognosis or outlook for those puppies in your experience? Well, it's, they haven't been practicing it for very long. So there is an advantage to that in that you aren't dealing with a behavior that the dog has been doing and it's been reinforced for years on end. However, if you've got a young puppy that's really showing those crazy overt behaviors, it would require a lot of work in order to fix that puppy. A lot of times they don't have good outcomes, but I've had some that have as well. I mean, if it's if it's a specific thing that is setting the puppy off and you can really focus in on it and manage the puppy to keep everybody safe in the meantime, then definitely they, if they're willing to, we can give it a try. Um, but a lot of the times those are cases where the aggression may, you know, just be towards one thing, but then it'll kind of blossom out into other things as the dog ages. What do you think about how, what, let's say you've got, if we had a perfect crystal ball we could look into or look back into and we knew that the the reason for the aggression was learned versus genetic do you feel like those puppies can be shifted more kind of molded more than dog that maybe is is coming from has a genetic background to have a propensity for aggression at such a young age i think so yeah Um, I think, I mean, you use a lot of the techniques you would use with an older dog to work on those things, but I think that the learned behaviors are definitely, you, you more likely to have success with that one. On the other side of the coin, if we have the genetic puppy, so that's kind of an odd term, but the the genetically (laughs) aggressive puppy, (laughs) yeah. uh, how like hope for those puppies is, I mean, is that modifiable behavior in your experience? I mean, I'm not saying it's not worth a try as long as it's, you know, as long as everybody can stay safe in the situation and management 
can be done properly. I think it's definitely worth trying. Sometimes, though, those are cases where a veterinary behaviorist may need to be involved for sure and kind of we may need to add medication, that kind of thing, in order to really start working on it. So that kind of had me think about like as far as the genetics, but also like in utero stress in terms of puppies that are their mom is very stressed out. So I, I see this sometimes with dogs coming from the south or they, the story is they found the pregnant mom on the road, side of the road somewhere, <laughs> and then the puppies were born in the shelter and then they ship up the puppies up north or something like that. And a lot of the times you those puppies are, I would say, more hypervigilant, more hyper aware of the environment, kind of more ready to uh, react towards things, kind of more impulsive if I had to put a label on it. And the theory, now nobody knows for sure, because again, this is not something that's been deeply studied. In utero, stress has been, but what about that in, that, in those cases? How, what, what's your experience there and how moldable are those puppies? Yeah, I can't say I've worked with any of those specifically, but I mean... I think that you it would still be worth a try for sure. There's just it's kind of like the genetic component. It's more of an ingrained type of hormonal change that's likely going on in those dogs. Um, are these ones that you've seen? Are they born in the shelter or were they born on the streets and then brought up? Either or. So we can. Okay. Our hypothesis or the hypothesis is that the mom's under a lot of stress yeah. when she's you know surviving on the street. Usually the mom is. Um, underweight and you know her health isn't that great so she's kind of fending for herself so we can assume a reasonable amount of stress for that mother and then the puppies are born whether on the side of the road somewhere or in the shelter uh, there's still a lot of stress in that environment as best as we can make it it's still going to be stressful for that dog so yeah and I think I mean it's hard because the the shelter environment yeah is stressful as well but I think those dogs they just may may be more susceptible to stressful events and, you know, things you may have to just treat them differently than you would a dog that was born to a mother who had, you know, plenty of food and wasn't as stressed for basic resources as one that was, um, you know, on the streets and maybe couldn't find food or was trying to find a place to stay that was safe all the time. I think that those puppies are definitely workable and I would just really watch for the signs where they're starting to develop stress and you kind of have to be a little more vigilant about dog behavior when you've got puppies like that. So tell me more about the uh, the research that you have done with puppies. It's you were telling me about it before, it sounds super fascinating. So expand on, you know, what this the study you've been doing and how that's going now. Mm-hmm. So we did a study where we got puppy owners to enroll when they got their puppies. So during that actual socialization period, they had to be under 12 weeks of age. And it was an online survey study. So we then followed those dogs until they were about a year of age, getting owners um, every few months to fill out a survey so we could get information about how they were socializing their puppy. And then we had them um, fill out a, it's called CBARC. It's kind of a standardized questionnaire that helps you determine a bit of information about behavior problems. So we were able to see kind of the development of behavior problems, but also what they did with puppies to get a good idea of what the general public was doing with their young dogs. We did this in the U.S. and in Canada. So it was a North American-based study, um, and we found that about a third of 
puppy owners weren't really exposing their puppies to many other dogs or to many people. So we defined that. It was really hard to define. Originally, we did the study and we were hoping to get a, a number for how many dogs or how many people you needed to expose your puppy to, but it's really complicated to do that kind of research. What we ended up doing was kind of making a standard, you know, not very socialized or minimally socialized, which was under 10 people every two weeks that they were exposed to and under five dogs every two weeks. And we found a third of the people had less than that for exposures for their puppies. And we also looked at puppy classes and what they were doing in puppy classes. So we found that the dogs that went to puppy classes at a year of age were less fearful of different noises, so like thunder, vacuums, those sorts of things. Um, and also the owners really changed the way they raised their puppies. So they were learning something, we think, in their puppy classes that made them use less punishment-based discipline when raising their dogs. So is this were these um, uh, pet owners from a certain part of the world or all over, kind of just a... From North America. North America. From, well, no, Canada and U.S., yeah. So as far as the type of puppy classes, was it just any, any puppy class that they were checking off? Yeah, well, we tried to get a bit of information, but that's part of the problem with these Mm -hmm. studies where you're looking at puppy class attendance is there is such a range in puppy classes and what people are doing in puppy classes. Um, It's kind of, it really depends on where you go. Most of them had a component where they were playing with other puppies, but it really depended on the class, you know, kind of what they were doing. So the puppy classes, you would see, uh, just to recap, less punishment from the owner. And yes. less propensity to be fearful towards sudden sounds, vacuum cleaners, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Interesting. absolutely. Interesting. How, how yeah. many people were in that study? Or what was the sample size, as they say, as you scientists say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had uh, 296 puppy owners, wow. and each one wow. had one puppy. So it's not huge in terms of an epidemiological study, but it was mm-hmm. pretty good sample size, we thought. It kind of speaks to the benefits of puppy classes in regards to the behavior, especially to the things you mentioned. Yeah, sure. yeah. And it was it was kind of interesting to see some of the results as well because we did ask what type of thing they did in their puppy class, and there was such a range. I mean, most of the puppy classes, I would say almost all of them did things like sit and down and walking on leash, loose leash walking, that kind of thing. Um, And then as we got kind of into things like handling puppies or, um, you know, different things like that, the number of classes where they did that type of thing really decreased. So I think a lot of the classes, or some of them anyway, were more just obedience type thing, whereas others were more what I consider, you know, your average puppy class where there's playtime with the other puppies and they're doing things like handling and some of the other socialization things. Uh, very interesting stuff. So let's now, one of the big questions I'm sure that many people are wanting to hear is about aggression between litter mates. So mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's identify or let's tease out the term uh, littermate syndrome, which is uh, something that you see online or in the, in the dog training circles anyways. Uh, what are your thoughts on that or littermate syndrome in general and, and your definition of it, if you have one? for that maybe term. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I guess I define it as, you know, problems you get when you have litter mates together in a household. So it could be problems like aggression, or it could be problems like separation, anxiety type behavior when they are separated from one another or codependency type problems. There is 
really no research in this area. It's kind of just a, it's a term that is used. Um, there was one study that I looked up that did kind of look into this. So what they did was they looked at interdog aggression cases within the household that were going to, um, I think it was a university behavior um, program. And they found that 12% of those cases were actually family members and only half of those were actually siblings. So although it seems like this is such a huge problem, when the do- cases are actually going to specialists, it's a really small number that are siblings that they're seeing. So I think we hear about it a lot and people worry about it a lot, but there are a lot of successful sibling pairings in households. It's just those bad cases I think we do hear about. You know, it's almost like it's they want to attribute a reason for the problem. And so exactly. they'll look maybe at because they're litter mates. That's why they're fighting. Right? Yeah. And I kind of wonder if some of those are because they're reaching sexual maturity at the same time because they're the same age or things like that, where it's not necessarily just because they're siblings, but it may be other factors involved as well. So we can see the same thing if I got a puppy from one litter. Uh, it's like border collie from one litter and a golden retriever from another and they just happen to be the same age and I bring them home at the same time we could very well see the same issues as we would see between litter mates it would uh, be really neat to study that actually and see if there was a you know a difference in the number of cases you would get in those two situations are there any behaviors in litter mates that are you would see are more prevalent so you mentioned the separation or the codependency that's something I've I think is is more prevalent than the Mm -hmm. aggression stuff but are there anything in terms of the aggression standpoint that you would see more prevalently between two litter mates uh, for any reason yeah i mean if they've developed kind of a bit of a social hierarchy between the two of them um and that's you know gone on over time and then if they met reach sexual maturity and that maybe changed that could definitely cause some issues so if there's changes in that you know, they've been used to the same thing for an extended period of time and all of a sudden things change. Um, that could cause problems. But also just if, you know, one puppy's kind of always picking on the other puppy after a while, that could cause problems as well. So I guess it really depends on the relationship and the two individual dogs that you're looking at. I think it's one of the things we see is going back to that resource guarding or competition over resources there's a longer history with two litter mates, right? Than there is with two, you bring home a couple 10 week old puppies. They don't have that prior four or five weeks of competing over a potential resource that the two litter mates might have. Interesting stuff. (laughs) Yeah, no, Um, it really is. It's just, we don't really know much about it there. Yeah. It really hasn't been studied much and I think it should. Yeah. And I think just to touch on your other point too, you were mentioning just how much one puppy is bullying the other and uh, which of course can happen between non-related puppies. But do you see like it being an issue of communication deficits sometimes and because of being litter mates or do you think they're just going to be more adept because they are litter mates? It could go either way, really. Mm -hmm. Um, You may get a case where, you know, if one puppy is bullying the other, they start ignoring really the other signals because they're so used to it. It's just the way it's been for a long time. But in some cases, they might be more aware of, you know, the minute signals that they're giving each other and actually get along better. What do you do if you have to, like, you have a client that calls you and it's like, my my two, you know, uh, puppies are really fighting. So nine weeks old, 
10 weeks old and they are just going at it. This one would just bite and grab and shake the other puppy. So they sometimes get along. You always hear that statement. But uh, when I have them together, sometimes they get into these really awful fights between puppies. What what are your thoughts there? Is there a particular uh, prognosis for those puppies? And if so, if it's a good prognosis in your mind, what do you do from there? Again, it's one of those things that I personally, I find can go either way. I first of all, try to really understand what's going on and try to get some video of it because some it's sometimes difficult to tell what's play and what's actually aggression so it's first of all figuring out if there's actually aggression involved but if they're shaking another puppy generally not it's good it's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so trying to really tease out what could be happening prior to that so is there resources involved is you know what is precipitating this aggression are they just overtired and that's when it's happening so if we can really tease that apart and figure out and you can't always obviously but um, if there's certain things that are kind of creating that from happening we try to remove it right away and just see how they do without that and really try to work on some skills individually with the two dogs a lot of times you know if they're working on just basic even manners they're doing it with the two dogs together so really trying to separate them give them a little bit of you know alone downtime and give them spots where they can go to be quiet is really helpful too just jumping back to that prognosis like it's interesting how this has played off with for my cases over the years and the puppies it can as you said go either way and and I kind of wanted to preface that for the audience, too, is that it doesn't always necessarily mean it's shocking. It's kind of like seeing a three-year-old walking around with a assault rifle, yeah. <laughs> right? But it's for puppies, it's just shocking when you see a puppy display that kind of overt aggression. A lot of times it's not expecting, or especially if it's somebody's first case and they see a puppy doing that. A lot of questions come into mind. And I had a, I had a colleague of mine reach out to me. She had video. It was a litter that she was uh, kind of fostering. And a couple of litter mates were having some of the most overt conflicts I've ever seen between puppies. And so she did a lot of work. She's also a trainer. She did a lot of work. And those dogs grew up good with other dogs, believe it or not. Interesting how that plays out. But uh, I've also, of course, had puppies that um, didn't work out that well. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball with those cases to say, you know, this is going to be successful or it's not. It's just it's really hard to say if it's going to. Yeah. Yeah. When I was talking to Sue Sternberg, too, she had mentioned the same thing. It's kind of a address it like it's an adult dog. Right. Mm -hmm. But you you can you know, you have the flexibility of it being a puppy, but you also have to proceed with caution because from a genetic standpoint or from the resiliency to to any kind of behavior change strategies, we have to be prepared that it might not change much, again, depending on what we've got in front of us. Mm-hmm. Another case, too, I had many years ago was a friend of mine actually had this beagle puppy. And he's like, you know, I'm having issues. The dog is, you know, growling when I'm going near his food or something like that. So basically, I'm like, just, you know, dude, stop going near his food while he's eating. Things like that. Basic <laughs> advice. But he he's like, really, I, I'm serious. I got this serious problem going on. So he brings the puppy over and... Wow, it was one of the most overt, aggressive behaviors, displays I've ever seen. I mean, so real, like, sensitive to handling, resource guarding, and very confidently doing so. So not a fear-based type of puppy, just I'm guarding this and you're not going to touch me. That's the kind of behavior I was seeing. So I had fortunately had some, you know, protective gloves on because puppy teeth are still pretty sharp. (laughs) And full-on bite, hold, shake on my glove when I went to try to like handle the puppy at all. And this puppy was nine weeks. 
And uh, so I gave them I gave them a, a behavior plan. I'm like, okay, let's see how this goes. And that dog's probably about eight years old now and is living happily with his uh, wife and his. Uh, they, she has a nine or ten year old daughter and another dog, all living happily. So it's, sometimes That's it just fantastic. surprises you when puppies display that kind of behavior. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a case where you definitely want to get some assistance with the puppy. Um, you don't usually want to try to manage that one on your own. But yeah, it, they, they can be so malleable at that age. So I usually think it's worth trying as long as people are willing to do it and they can manage it so that it's safe. And if there's young children in the home, that kind of thing, it might not be a case where I would say that they should continue to try with that puppy. But in a lot of cases, it can work out. So where can people find out more about what you're up to and what you're doing now? Yeah, for sure. My website is landmarkbehavior.com and people can go there to see the different things that I have up. I am just finishing up a puppy course and it's going to be available very soon. So that's something they could get. And it's, um, it's kind of a bit different. It's not just a puppy course that would be offered in person and then taken online, but it really covers everything from, you know, your typical learning how to do basic commands and manners type stuff, but also detailed socialization plan and how to develop that. Um, there's information on resource guarding, house training, crate training, kind of everything you would need in order to really help with your puppy is up there. And then I'm usually on social media on Instagram at janetcutler.phd. And that's kind of where I'm most active. So people could go there as well. Are you on Facebook as well? or I am on Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Landmark Behavior. Okay. Is Wonderful. The page. Perfect. And I'll put those in the show notes for everybody to look up. Wonderful. Janet, thank you so much for coming on the show. Lots of great information about puppies and what to do with aggressive puppies. I really appreciate it. So thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining me for The Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, or give a rating to the episode. And don't forget to hop on over to AggressiveDog.com or the Loose Leash Academy for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues.